So I'm really excited to be bringing you the new episode of What's New in Adaptive Physical Education on assessment. I was able to get an assessment panel from the 45th National APE Conference in California. Great uh, group of people, and I really think that they're great. Um, lots of information. So if you go on the blog, though, too, you can also see another presentation I did on how and why to create a podcast in physical education, which I think is a great thing to check out. And the other thing I want to quickly discuss, it's been a while since I've been on here, and I currently have some lost files, and they will be retrieved. I just haven't had the time to take my computer in from the Denton podcast. So if you notice, this is, let's get in there right away. This uh, podcast can be broken up into three different assessment pieces, so I hope you enjoy. Take care. Uh, the way that I hope that this comes is it, it becomes, uh, we're here right now, we're, we're getting our professional development right now and, and learning from one another but being APE specialists sometimes we're so siloed and we're in areas all by ourselves. and I hope that podcasts are a way to reach us um, to connect us another way um, on a more regular basis. We look at trying just to undercover some of the different questions of what is adaptive physical education, what is the importance, what is the benefits and how do we best implement it on this podcast and I try to make the panels up of Special ed teachers, APE teachers, um, I've had nonprofit directors, authors, I've had parents on here as well. So I try to get a diverse group of people on the podcast to discuss some of those topics. Today, though, we're going to talk about assessment and the state of assessment in our field of APE, some of the different options you have as well. So I want to introduce everyone that I have on the panel um, Right now I have, I put Dr. Lisa Silliman French up first. She's my chair on my, uh, <laughs> on my committee as a doctoral student, so um, she's the one that I care about the most. <laughs> so she's the, she's the most important person on the panel, all right? Okay, done. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm done. Okay, I'm making her blush. But she's an APE professor at Texas Women's University, as well as she used to be a special ed and APE coordinator uh, in the city of Denton. And uh, she specializes in, in assessment and has also made our state manual for APE in the state of Texas. So, welcome, Doctor. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. You got to. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. All right, and then I have Dr. Barry LeVay, who's also been a, uh, a past panelist on behavior management, which was a, a really successful podcast that we've had as far as listeners go. Um, and he's a professor. California State University in the Department of Kinesiology, and I know that he's a big person in just getting uh, this conference running, as well as everyone I've talked to at this conference. is my first time at this conference, which I've been amazed with. Everyone seems to know who Dr. LeVay is, so he seems to be the man of the hour here. I don't know if that's good, but... So then we have Catherine Russell, who we just met, yes, and she is a special ed... Uh, administrator, but a former APE specialist, correct, and vice principal, and then principal, and now special ed coordinator right here, correct? And correct, and for Los Angeles County Office of Ed. Yes, and I think that's an interesting story right there, because I don't think we get enough of our APE people to take some of those administrative roles sometimes, so I think that's a very unique perspective. I don't know if she's the boss of anyone here, but 
Anybody? No. No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> not not this year. Not this year. Okay. She's also I, were you, and you presented here at the thirtieth and the fortieth. Uh, yes, I was the program chair for the thirtieth and the uh, conference uh, director for the the fortieth, along with Dr. Levey and Dr. Vertebra, Johnny Vertebra, the audience. And last but not least, we have Marcy Pope, who. Oh wow! Okay, I know you're showing up, everyone. Okay. She's an AP specialist for charter schools in uh, Chico, as well as she is a co-director for the uh, Northern California APE Consortium and a lecturer at California State, which is Chico, correct? Correct. Yes, I'm learning at the new California language as well. So um, this is the panel, and I'm really, really excited. I got some really great experts here. We're going to talk about assessment. Everyone calm down, all right? Calm down. <laughs> You're getting too wild. All right, so we're going to get started, and we're just going to run right into it. Oh, and a few things for the, the audience. Um, while we're making the podcast, I'm already recording it right now. If you all can keep it to a whisper, I think you're all doing a great job, but we could pick some of that stuff up, and I might not be able to edit it for later. As well as um, at the end, we are going to ask questions. So if you have any questions that you want to grill them on, my first question about assessment is, do we, why is it needed for APE specialists? What is the importance of assessment specifically for APE specialists? Well, I'll start since um, I'm the oldest, okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, no, I, I think, you know, one of the things when you think assessment, and I think every AP teacher would agree, I want to meet the individual needs of my students that I'm working with, and I want to be an effective teacher with my students and motivate them. And so what better way through assessment that drives everything, that's where you start. Um, if you really want to know the individual needs of your students, you start with, with assessment. So I would say um, that's why assessment, and, and also we'll probably get into this later, um, assessment is really multifaceted, and there's a lot of aspects to to assessment, and uh, I think uh, initially a lot of people think, well, I'll, I'll learn a couple of standardized uh, assessment tools and I'll be good to go, but it's much more than that. It's very multifaceted, and there's a lot of aspects that we're going to be talking about today regarding assessment. So, I, I think it just drives everything. That, you know, it's where we start if we want to know the, the child best. I was going to add that it drives what I do with the kiddo, so that's basically why I need to assess. This was Marcy Pope. And uh, Kathy Russell, um, it, it also, uh, once the student has been identified with a disability, it's, it's what drives uh, assessing for their needs. So it's, it's crucial in the sense of uh, determining exactly where their deficits are and, and what they need to do and, and what services they might require. So it's um, you know, really critical that uh, the adaptive PE teacher know uh, assessments and be very uh, well versed in them because this is, this is how we get into getting the service. Uh, can I, I'm gonna jump in already and start interrupting you all. Um, so you said it drives instruction and I hear that a lot and, and I like in the podcast to try to break some of those barriers from higher ed to sometimes what we're doing. And, we say that it drives instruction, but how does that actually happen? Well, I, I would say what comes to mind is, first of all, if you're assessing a student, then um, it's one thing to test a student and collect data. It's another thing to interpret the data and make decisions about how you're going to provide appropriate instruction. So drive means interpreting the data to make uh, non-biased decisions about the students you're going to work with. So that's how I would interpret a uh, drive. 
This is Marcy. And um, to, for me, drive means finding out those individual characteristics about the student, like their strengths or um, where their needs may be, so that as I'm choosing what types of service that child is going to get, all of that can come into play. So drive is just the very beginning to choose which path we're going to take as we progress with possible service. It's hard to elaborate any more than what the panel has already said. This is Lisa. Um, they said everything. The only thing I could really add is the fa it's the foundation. It's the foundation for their PLAF uh, present level of academic achievement and functional performance. It, and it builds our goals and objectives slash benchmarks to direct us on which way we're going to go with our students. And it, it, you start understanding the student more than just uh, Dr. LeVay mentioned that sometimes we just skip this. Many people skip the assessment part and they just write in anything and place our students and that happens but you don't know the student and we're making decisions. So th those decisions that we make with our students after we assess them are extremely important. So to me assessment is probably the, one of the most important things we do in our job. I just want to reinforce what, what Lisa said. This is Barry. Uh, about it's the foundation and also in this day and age um, are the decisions you're making are they defensible and if they are defensible it should be based on sound assessment so I think that's you know really important and that word foundation is, is, a, is a good one to remember so, so let's break that down a little bit because I think we're talking you know and I, I started it out very generic uh, you know, why assess, but what are some of the areas that, that, that we as APE teachers need to assess and what is, is there levels of different importance of the areas that we need to assess as APE specialists? Talking physical affect. Well, of course, I think you know we need to follow our guidelines based on IDEIA and that really gives us our foundation on what we're supposed to be doing. And sometimes we trickle out and I believe that cognitive and affective are secondary. They just they go hand in hand. That's part of our job. It's in any subject area. That just we're always improving self-concept. We're always increasing cognition. So that to me is secondary. So I believe that we should focus on the foundation and idea, what we're supposed to be assessing, and then it's individualized. So if they're secondary, then we need to focus on maybe developing authentic assessments, that's fine. More fitness, lifetime stuff, that's great. Elementary, we're building fundamental gross motor skills. I just think, as we know, we kind of that, those are the areas I believe we should be focusing on. What, what I would share is what Lisa said is uh, idea. And so the first thing I'd look at is what's the definition of physical education under idea? Is it you know, gross motor skills, uh, physical and health related fitness, fundamental motor skills, lead up games and sports, uh, leisure, and you know, we should also be thinking top down and what do they need as far as, um, as they get older. And so that, that would be the first way I'd answer that question. But I also would say that the unique contribution we make is in the motor domain. And no other uh, area you know, uh, can make that claim. And so we need to stress that. Like, like Lisa said, social is important, effective domain certainly, and cognitive. But what we do that's unique and where we uh, can make uh, important inroads, and we need to share that with the parents, is that what we do is the motor domain. So you know, a healthy I think, lifestyle. I, I think that that's important, the motor domain. But sometimes when I go and I talk to other fields, mm -hmm. if I talk to other special ed practitioners, 
they don't seem to care about that domain and they care about the social and cognitive domain. And so then for assessment and for us as APE specialists, do we try to bridge that gap or do we try to and show them that the motor is important through assessment or do we try to raise our ability in the cognitive and social domain? Well, we really want to be assessing the whole child. So this is, this is really an area that is, is included, is the motor ability. If they can't sit in their chair to attend for a lesson in classroom, uh, we need to take a look at why and how we need to, to assist with that. Uh, they have to have that physical activity. It is, it, research shows um, all, all the benefits of physical activity and, and learning uh, in the classroom. And so to miss that one piece, um, we would not be giving them educational benefit um, from their assessment. Um, we, wouldn't, we would not be looking at the whole child and seeing truly where their areas of, suspect, uh, areas of need are based on their suspected disability. Mrs. Barry, the way I would respond to that is I would give them examples. You know, when we're looking at, at health, health-related fitness, what's more fundamental than that is that, you know, being physically fit so that you can attend, like Kathy was saying, to the tasks that you're supposed to be doing. Functional skills. Um, do you have the strength to open a door? And so you've got to make the parents understand uh, what is, that's part of our job is to advocate and make them understand what is physical education. Many of them don't know. If um, I've had many parents sit across from me and say, I want my kid to be social. Well, what's more social than sharing and, and engaging in cooperative activities in physical education? I'd like to add the beauty of our position, our professional position, when we come to the table, we're bringing a strong, Barry said, a motor aspect to the team. So it's a team approach. So maybe we're going to need a, a school psychologist or to bring into the more of the effect add. So the beauty of that is we're bringing our strong points to the table, the motor aspect. We're not leaving behind the effective and cognitive part. We're not leaving it but we're not the front end of it. We're, we're motor and then the other person. So we, uh, that's what I love about this field is we're a team. So I always believe in the philosophy that you're never gonna go down alone. Don't go down alone. Don't think you have it all covered as yourself. Always go down with the team or go up with the team. So always stay with the team. So with going with social and cognitive, because I think this sometimes it gets a little fuzzy to me. When and why would we assess for social and cognitive and not the motor aspect, or, or with paired with the motor rather than just motor. We're lucky, this is Marcy, and we're lucky here in California to have the California content standards in physical education, and they contain all aspects, the motor aspect, the cognitive aspect, and that affective piece. And so through assessment, we're not just looking at the motor tests that are provided for us as formal uh, assessment tools, but we can also use the standards as a way to assess to see how they're fitting with their grade level peers. I guess another way to respond to that would also be looking at the child's behavior as the, uh, from a social standpoint, is the behavior impeding their ability to uh, perform skills. And so we, we have to you know look at the whole child, like Kathy is saying, and, and behavior can really affect you know, movement. I knew you, you know, it would be only a matter of time before I got that plug in for behavior, right? Okay. <laughs> I think that when you, when we assess, there are assessments that do ask us how are they doing 
with their peers and are they team sports and stuff. So they're available and they're generally just checkoffs, you know, on our side of the house. And there's really nice um, articles that are out there that people, adaptive PE teachers use all over the United States that really nice collaborative um, sheets for that, Scott. Um, I think we can bring that to the table, but I think you, my opinion is we should always t team up with somebody else. If you need more information on, uh, with a physical therapist, team up with them. Write the IEP together. If you need a behavior specialist, team up with the behavior specialist and get that input so you can work together with the physical educator and the behavioral therapist and yourself to help that child in, in or out of the physical education setting, whatever the most appropriate setting is for them to grow in those areas. In the end, what you want is a multidisciplinary report. Yeah. And so you want all team members involved on it. Uh, there are some assessments that do um, ask those questions about how is the child doing when you're testing them on a given day? How are you, how are you looking at the child? Were they having a bad day? Um, were they cooperative? Were they able to, you know, response? And so those things can be key because you can be assessing a student on a given day and, and they're checked out or you don't have the rapport with them or, or there's something along those lines that you're not going to get the best score when you're testing them. So you have to take those, those things into account when you're assessing them as to all factors that are, are influencing your assessment, uh, environmental, socially, cognitively, the whole piece. I think, you know, what we're really reinforcing here, you're hearing everybody on the panel say how important collaboration is, and many teachers early in their career, um, they might be reluctant to go to other uh, people that have expertise, and we can't know everything about that child, and so we've got to be willing to go to that PT or OT. I was very fortunate to work on a motor team uh, early in my career when I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I learned a lot from PTs and OTs. Uh, you know about about the child, and I th I think you have to look at it from a collaborative standpoint, and not be afraid to uh, ask questions of of other people who that's what they do, that's their expertise. So I'm going to start talking about. I want to talk a little bit about legislation now, and go on to that really fun piece. Um, so let's start federally, and how it. What are the guidelines right now? What are the rights of students and, and parents right now uh, about assessment and then maybe specifically for APE? And is there really anything that's specifically for assessment for APE that's in federal guidelines? And then we'll talk state after that. Well, I think a good place to start is to think FAB, you know, free appropriate education. And so that holds true too for assessment, is that that child is entitled, the parents are entitled to uh, an assessment that's, you know, free and appropriate. So I think that's where you start. I also think that it, like we talked about earlier, it should be by a multidisciplinary team. I think if you look at the law and you look at ideas, some of these things haven't changed since the, the 70s, is that um, the people that are doing the assessment should have expertise in that area. It shouldn't be to the point where it's at a disadvantage to, uh, to the child. That, that's another thing that the law talks about. And so those are, those are good places to start. The, the key is, is that we must, under law, test in all areas uh, the suspected disability, motor being one of them. So when you're asking about uh, legislative and, and laws and ed code and, and federal and state and everything else, it's in there that if we have a student that has um, a disability, we must assess in all suspected areas. 
of delay. And um, you can't say, well, they're getting OT or PT, and so we don't need to assess an adapted PE. We should be assessing, we should be taking a look at that domain as well because we come at it from a different angle as OTs and PTs. So there is law that guides the assessment and guides the timelines for how long you have once you give a permission to assess to, to um, get that accomplished for that. Well, then why, and I don't know if there's a direct answer, why is that not happening often, that APE is not getting assessed in a lot of areas um, when there should be a suspected delay? And I'm in California, which I know you have strong APE programs here, but in the rest of the country, that's not always the case. Well, I think the law says physical education, and so where you start is that, that um, if there aren't people who have expertise in certain states, then sometimes that's not going to be looked at. And, and the law really looks at motor. And I think sometimes um, people who are not as knowledgeable think, okay, motor, like that could be OT, that can be PT. There, there's a lot of gray area. And the law was, was designed so that it would be appropriate for, for you know, all states. And sometimes people interpret things uh, differently. And, uh, but I think it's, it's up to us. We have to advocate for our field. We have to educate. We have to educate people about, like Kathy is saying, what, what can we bring to the table as far as this. Um, and so that's how I respond. I think another thing that's often overlooked in the law is that the assessment tool should be um, look at a battery of test items. It shouldn't be like one single test item that you're administering. So I think that's, that's important, and that's how I would respond to that issue. You know, you know it's, it's difficult out there sometimes. People are going to interpret things the way that's um, financially at, at an advantage for them. This is Lisa, real quick, just a comment in the practical world. I'm, I'm probably going to see a lot of hands raised. How many times have you been forgotten one day before the art? Oh yeah, by the way, we need a full evaluation. Yeah. Or by the way, yeah, see. That's almost so, all the hands, almost by all the, the way. Hands. So we are forgotten. So you have the law up here, what we're supposed to be doing. Then you have one person or two maybe, whoever the people are in charge, case managers, diagnosticians, whoever, they're in charge of gathering all of us, but we're, we're itinerant, so we're in and out of that building. So that's the real world, and we're forgotten. So the only way we can not be forgotten is communication with the parents, communication with these folks that are the leaders for running these committee meetings. Um, so that's just... We have to switch the switch that I think Scott. So I, yes, we are forgotten many times, but I don't. The intentions I believe are not. Um, they're not truly doing that because they they think they just can't remember all the people that they're supposed to bring to the table. So and then you have general physical educators that have classes of 80, 90 students, and so one student's having a problem. They're not going to. Oh yeah, I forgot. There's an APE teacher <laughs> in this building. So. So those are the things that I think that we need to be advocates. We need to be advocates. So one quick little thing, I always believe that we, sh we should call the parents. We should call the parents. And then that opens such a nice communication and we can work with them with their child. I agree with Lisa. I think, you know, it is a collaborative model. Um, it is about communication with the caseworkers and the teachers and having them be able to identify those in a timely manner to you. So, so that relationship piece is very important. Um, the other issue that we, we sometimes have is um, because states look at um, 
here in California that physical education is only required in, in grades 1 through 12. And so then your preschoolers and your transition age kids, they're saying, well, we shouldn't have to have physical education because that's no longer um, you know, part of their curricular uh, needs based on ed code. So then you have to say, well, we're not only just a um, designated instructional service, but we're also related. And so if there's an area of need, you know, the law then goes ahead that direction as well. So that is an area where sometimes um, I know districts are fighting that battle as to whether the preschoolers and the transition kids and the, even some of the little kinders um, and TKs are getting assessed in those areas because school districts are saying, well, we don't, you know, the gen ed kids aren't getting physical education, so uh, you know, why would we be doing that for them? So, uh, you know, to summarize that one word, advocacy. I mean, we have to, we can't sit there and wait, oh, nobody called me. You know, like we, we have to advocate and say, and find out when are these meetings going to be. And, and, you know, the veteran teachers know that. They know that sometimes everybody raised their hand in this in the audience that they're going to get overlooked. That's just a reality. That's why we're such strong advocates for our profession. That's part of your job. All right, um, I'm gonna jump now to eligibility a little bit as when we can kind of talk about legislation with that too. Can one of you kind of give me um, a brief summary of the eligibility process for someone to get APE services? And then I'm gonna verify a couple of things. Like are you, uh, one thing I, I'll, I could talk a little bit about is like criteria for eligibility. If, if that's what you're asking. And so I think one of the things that really uh, plagues us as a profession is there's no like federally mandated criteria for eligibility. There's best practices. There's, if you look at like SHAPE, they have a position statement. If you look at the California AP guidelines, they have um, uh, best practices as far as, let's say, for example, your one and a half standard deviations below on a motor test or you're in the seventh percentile below on a, a um, norm reference test or let's say you're looking at developmental milestones or, or you're looking at how they do compared to their age group peers, they're 30 percent or below on a number of, of items. Those are some best practices, and that's some place you would start with, with criteria for eligibility. I think too often a lot of people think, okay, this kid's in special ed; they automatically should be referred, or you know, re not referred, excuse me, but be in adaptive PE. But that's not the case. They, we need to determine what's the criteria for eligibility, and you need to educate um, your administrators about those those things and sh share with them the guidelines or here are the best practices, the California AP guidelines. But I know there's a lot more to eligibility than that, but that's just one, that's the one piece. So this is Marcy, and um, I helped write the state guidelines for adapted physical education here in California. And when we did this chapter, um, there was a lot of discussion about the terms eligibility and criteria and qualification. And what was determined at the table with many other adapted PE folks from the state is that a child is eligible or qualifies for special education. And then once under special education, they are eligible for any services under that if the need is there. So we shouldn't be using the term qualify or criteria or 
eligibility for adapted physical education. It's just if they have a need for that service, it should be there for them. And so our assessment process is there to show what the need is and how they should be able to, um, how, what services need to be provided to help them with that area of need. So I know that there's some SELPAs and districts that have some type of criteria written into their SELPA guidelines, but um, the law is written that there is no eligibility or criteria guidelines for adapted PE. That fell under them receiving special education services. And again, once they're under the special ed umbrella, then we're just looking for areas of need. So then we just need to show where are they best going to meet their needs for physical education. And, and just for clarifying for, for the audience, uh, SELPA is a special education local plan area. So it's a bunch of uh, uh, districts or consortiums that come together that have students that need, uh, with special needs, and they're housed under with an administrator and, and the finances of the state and everything get funded through that. Hi, this is Lisa. So I'm, we're, I'm in Texas, so our, we're a little bit different from California because you have a specific certification in adaptive PE, correct or no? We have a credential. Okay. We have yeah. a credential we or an added authorization. Okay, very good. We don't have that in Texas. So what we take advantage of, which I really enjoy in Texas, is that we do have, I like Marcy just is editing as she's speaking my manual right here, <laughs> guidelines for the need for APE services. Uh, we do have specific um, guidelines that we follow because we can, if so if a student is, is for example, is functioning uh, on the lower end, and so when we come in as an itinerant, we can work as a team with a teacher and the paraeducator, so maybe we'll check no for APE services from us, but in Texas, the special ed teacher can um, provide that service in Texas. So in Texas, uh, special ed teachers, physical education teachers, believe it or not, an OT and a PT, and an APE person can provide the services in Texas. It's a strange one, but we're trying to get rid of those, the last OT and the PT, but that happens in Texas. So we're more of a consultant. So we're consultant models for the teacher, for students at either A or on the higher end that just need a little bit of uh, modification or on the students on the lower end. But yes, they receive bylaw physical education in some format, maybe it's a motor fitness program, or, but they don't, maybe they won't be going to PE. But we have guidelines that we work together collaboratively with the, the teacher, PE teacher. So we do, we may not be the, the, the direct service provider, maybe we're more of a consultant model. Where in other states, the certified states, the, that they would have to provide the services where we don't have to in Texas. And also, also getting back to that, um, kind of what Marcy was saying, the guidelines are, are recommended throughout the state. We provide them to all the local educational agencies. But in California, those requirements really do fall so, to the local education agencies or the districts to make those decisions as to whether or not they're going to enforce them and use them. They're truly guidelines, and they are um, uh, approved by the California Department of Ed, but um, they are not uh, enforced as far as a legal piece. I, 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 uh, it's something that I've thought about a lot, and I don't, and I've heard differing opinions on. Um, is that something that we should try to enforce more, or having those more open guidelines is that a sometimes a good thing? This is Marcy, and I really think it's a good thing because if we had strict guidelines of some type of motor skill performance then we miss out on those kids who are in general physical education but struggling for other reasons. And so going back to one of our questions earlier about all domains, um, 
there are kids that are in general education that we may get a referral for adapted physical education, yet we pull them out and do the skills for a formalized test and they can do those task-specific skills, but yet when you have them in a general physical education class or even a specially designed physical education class, they're still gonna struggle. So having these open guidelines, it allows us to, um, you know, pull in those kids who need help in other areas. Um, to reinforce what, what Marcy's saying is that um, what, what's, Okay. Yeah. You got it. All right. So one of the points that I think that gets overlooked is you've got your IEP team. And so if you've got these kids that, that are in this gray area, like we're talking about, that maybe there's behaviors, maybe there's something going on socially, that's where the IEP team can, co can come in. So when you have these strict guidelines, like Marcy's saying, is, and they're, they're set that way, then what about those other kids? that, um, you know, from a motor standpoint. And so we shouldn't lose uh, sight of that. If we have those strict guidelines, though, are we more apt to actually get kids, more kids receiving services that would need it, that might not be getting it? So if we have kids that aren't getting, you know, if, if we have more strict guidelines, are more schools going to abide by them rather than not really pay attention to it? Well, we, we also have to remember that the student has to be, <laughs> has to have been qualified for special education. We have a lot of those kids that do not have, uh, do not fall under the, the one of the, the 14 different disabilities now or, or, or whatever under IDEA for them to, to have that ability, which means that if we're providing services to them um, and, and, and everything, then we're encroaching on the general ed funds. So it becomes more of a, you know, into the 504 and the support and there's a whole, there's a whole other category for that. So we can sometimes go out and work with our general education teachers and provide them with modifications, accommodations, and how to uh, assist those kiddos. But we need to also be, be really cognizant of, um, of the services that we're providing are, are truly based on the fact that this is a student with special needs.